This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. A Pew study last year confirmed that U.S. political partisanship has risen sharply. In the face of that trend, is it possible for Democrats and Republicans to get along? Wharton professor Philip Tetlock recently spoke with Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, to explore this question. Haidt breaks down why it's so hard for liberals and conservatives to understand one another and what can be done to change that. Well, we're here to talk with uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt from New York University uh, about his book that came out last year, The Righteous Mind, uh, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Um, it's great to have you here, John. Thanks, Thank you. Great for, to be here at Wharton. For, for joining us. One, one, of, one of the big questions your book wrestles with is, is why is it so hard for liberals and conservatives mm-hmm. to understand each other? Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Mm-hmm. Well, the very nature of morality, the, the big thing that it does that I think isn't sufficiently appreciated is that it binds us into groups that can do things in the world. In the animal kingdom, the only time you get cooperation is pretty much kinship. You get pairs of individuals occasionally. But elsewhere in the animal kingdom, it's just family. And human beings uh, um, have this incredible capacity to come together in groups and do big things. And when you look back at the early history of cooperation, you always find temples, gods, religion, uh, people circle around sacred objects that binds them together, but at the same time, it blinds them. They can't think for themselves. They become partisan. They become members of the group. Liberals and conservatives in America now, each country has its own particular uh, uh, battles. Uh, liberals and conservatives are bound around different sacred values, sacred principles, and they absolutely cannot understand each other. They are forbidden from understanding each other, lest they be kicked out of their tribe. And you published the book last year. Have you, has anything happened to change your mind? Um, let's see. Well, since publishing the book, uh, not really. Um, I've the book has gotten a good reception, right, left, center, libertarian. Uh, except on the far left, some people on the far left hate it, and uh, the new atheists hate it. Um, but those are groups that I criticize in the book, so that's not surprising. Uh, I changed my mind a lot while writing the book. And when I started writing the book, I still considered myself to be a partisan liberal. And I actually began the project. I began shifting over from just studying morality across cultures to studying morality across political cultures, as though they were different nations. I started that after the 2004 um, Kerry loss to George W. Bush. And I, th- I wanted to just grab Kerry and the Democrats by the lapels and say, don't you know how to make a moral argument? Why do you keep appealing to self-interest and my policy will do more for you? Can't you make a moral argument? Um, so I got into the political psychology business originally to help the Democrats. And along the way, in really trying to, uh, to get inside the head of, of people from different moralities, I came to see that each side sees certain truths and insights and threats th- that they're right about. So you've been on an ideological journey of your own. Um, and it is possible for people to change their minds? Yes. All you have to do is study morality for 25 years <laughs> and try to write a book in which you state the other side's case sympathetically. It should be possible. Um, I asked the question about uh, the possibility of changing your mind because you, you do embrace in the book a fairly strong version of a moral intuitionist theory right. of um, um, how, how people uh, mm-hmm. work through puzzles of this sort. Mm-hmm. Um, 
could you say a few words about the, sure, the sure. What, what moral intuitionism is mm -hmm. and, and its implications yeah. for uh, our capacity to change? That's right. So a dominant thread in the history of philosophy is rationalism. The idea that we are, or at least could be, reasoning creatures. And if we can cultivate our reason, then we will rise above the fog of emotions, see the truth, we can talk to each other, and we will find light and truth. And my book is a sustained argument against that. I side very much with David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher who said that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. And so what I believe the empirical evidence from psychology shows is that our reasoning tends to be post hoc. Our reasoning about moral issues tends to be something we do after we already know which way we want to go. And we send our reasoning out like a press secretary. The president sends the press secretary out to say, justify this position. He doesn't say, go look at the notes about how we came to this position and explain that to the people. He says, justify this position using whatever arguments you think would be most persuasive. And that's the way our reasoning is. Uh, and this is why we are so good at giving each other reasons, but then the other person doesn't change their mind. And we think, well, they must not be sincere. I mean, this is a great argument. Why aren't you changing your mind? The trick to changing people's minds is to first get them leaning your way. First make them see a conclusion, feel it, think about, um, uh, think about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It is a kind of argument, but it's an argument couched in metaphors and soaring rhetoric. It opens your heart first, and then the metaphors can get in, and then you see the logic of it. So I actually do believe quite a lot in the importance of reason for persuasion. Just it has to be reason that follows intuition, not excludes it. So um, if, if you were president of the United States right now, mm -hmm. What would you do to encourage more civil dialogue between liberals and conservatives uh, uh, that the current president yeah. of the United States is not doing? Yeah. The number one top priority for this country is political reform to get our political institutions working better. Um, everyone agrees that Congress has gotten much, much more polarized since the 1980s. There are a lot of reasons for that. The people have gotten a little more polarized. Uh, there's plenty that we could do as citizens, but the real problem is the dynamics of one institution in particular, the U.S. Congress. So there's a group called nolabels.org, which has a great set of solutions. We all know that we need campaign finance reform, we need electoral reform. These things are going to take 10 or 20 years if we ever get them at all. They have some simple fixes, the most important of which is change the legislative calendar back the way it was before Newt Gingrich, which is, Washington is in session for five days a week, and then it's off for one week a month. Um, when Newt Gingrich came in, he told the incoming freshmen, don't move to Washington. Prior to then, they all lived in Washington. They served on committees together on school boards, or their wives and, or, or spouses did. They knew each other. They knew each other's kids. They had personal relationships. Now think about it. Politicians, what do they excel at? They're warm incredibly socially skilled people. That's how they got into this business. They're able to make deals with each other. That's, that's their great skill. And you take an institution that, that, that has trouble as it is, uh, that has all these divided powers as it is, and then you say, how about let's separate the two sides so they no longer know each other, no friendships, they don't ride on the same little buses under little train cars underneath the, the Capitol anymore, there's a separate, separate cars for each. Let's end all personal relationships and now have them work out difficult issues. It can't be done. So that's where we are. So there are a lot of simple fixes to Congress that would go a long way uh, towards basically getting it to work better. And if Congress wasn't so polarized, that would, that would dampen down the messages out through all the polarized media uh, that we all have to hate each other and that the other side is going to destroy the country.
So, John, at the end of chapter four of your book, you, you write that no one has ever invented a business ethics class that um, has demonstrably changed the behavior of the students after the classroom experience. Uh, and now at NYU Stern, you have begun teaching business ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Why? Well, uh, yes, they uh, because they asked me to, and I couldn't say no, uh, and because um, I made it sound kind of hopeless in the book, and I stand by that that a single standalone course meeting twice a week for a semester uh, can't put ethics into people's heads, so that when they go out into the work world and they're faced with requirements or pressures to do something, falsify something, hide some information from a customer. Um, they're going to remember their ethics class and say, oh, but this is wrong. Uh, there's no evidence that that can happen. The evidence in social psychology about the power of simple situational pressures is so overwhelming that I don't think an ethics class can really do that much. What I'm hoping we can do at Stern is, um, is make the class just a part of a two-year process in which we are socializing them into professionalism. What does it mean to be a business professional? When they first show up at, at Stern, like students all over the country at every school, there's a period of openness where everyone's trying to figure out, how should I be? What's cool? What's the right way to, you know, what, what's the way to be successful here? We teach our ethics class in the middle of the second year. It's way too late. They already know how to be a Stern student. And uh, so what we're trying to do is get a lot more of the content into the very first week, move the intensive class into other parts of the first year, and then get some of the content in every single class where, there, where we'll discuss norms of professionalism. But even more important than that, because I think that we're so limited in our ability to behave ethically in the face of situational pressures, I want to teach our students how to do ethical systems design, how to take all the flaws and weirdnesses of human nature and work with them to design organizations, startup companies, where people are always concerned about the reputation. People are concerned about reputation even more than money in most cases. How can we set things up so that people will, in a sense, um, guard the reputation by doing the right thing? That's the most important single principle. So um, do these liberal conservative differences that are so pronounced in the political sphere manifest themselves in the domain of business ethics? Uh, are there some aspects of ethics that are trans-ideological and other aspects that, that, that polarize people just as political issues do? Yes. The core issues of business ethics, again, I'm new at this, but from what I'm picking up, some of the core issues are things like fiduciary duty. You have an obligation to people who are hiring you to do a job, you, to fulfill a contract, to put their interests first. I don't see any partisan difference there. Um, other issues like corporate social responsibility are clearly partisan issues. Uh, one of the hottest topics in business ethics is how can we get companies to honor or maximize the triple bottom line, not just the financial bottom line, but also social benefit and ecological benefit. Obviously, this is going to appeal to students on the left and not on the right. Um, let's see, I don't know of issues that would appeal more to students on the right. Conservatives tend to focus more on personal responsibility. Um, liberals tend to focus more on victims and the poor. Um, but the, the core of the courses seems to be non-ideological. So the, the Friedmanite libertarians, uh, for example, tend to view any uh, uh, deviation from uh, fiduciary responsibility to shareholders as um, a form of theft. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. De facto theft. Uh, 
that's that's a strong position. That, is that uh, have you have you come across that position? And, oh yes. And, and you, yes, I, I read I read the article where Friedman lays that out. It's a very persuasive case. Uh, and I think if we truly had efficient markets, in which there were no externalities, in which there was no despoiling of public goods. Um, in which there was perfect information and people weren't allowed to deceive and cheat, then I think the Friedman argument would work. And I, I believe Friedman was very aware of that and, and wasn't saying, oh, just max my shareholder value no matter what the situation. Um, if, we had, uh, if we had such good markets where p companies couldn't be foisting costs onto unsuspecting victims, uh, then I think there would be a lot to be said for it. Uh, but we don't have such a comp uh, such a such a system. Uh, government regulation is necessary for, uh, to achieve much of that, and that's what things are so polarized about. What's the role of government? Is it, do you have a maximal view in which government has to strain, restrain the corporations, or do you have a minimal view in which government is the problem, and the more we can shrink it down, uh, the freer business will be to create value? You don't see very many companies, though, overtly endorsing the Friedmanite position. Virtually all companies I've come across seem to endorse some form of CSR, or corporate social responsibility. Has that been your experience also? I mean, well, putting, putting know, a TJ sure, Rogers but, and so forth. To you the know, side. but most people are in favor of motherhood and apple pie. I mean, they have to say something. There's no cost to saying it. Um, I would want to know how much they put in the way of resources towards backing that up. And I'd be surprised if it was uniformly the case that, or overwhelmingly the case, that companies are sincerely committed to CSR. Okay. So let, let's, let's uh, circle back to the press secretary metaphor that you used earlier when you were describing moral intuitionism. Um, are you able to distinguish what fraction of um, the embrace of, of corporate social responsibility is, is purely press secretary posturing as opposed to a genuine internalization of a, a moral priority? Yeah. I can't. I don't know how to do that. Uh, the main thought I've had so far in my one year in the business uh, world in the, in the, at the Stern School of Business um, is that whatever you want to say about business, it varies a lot by sector. So a company like Nike or Starbucks or Google, uh, which greatly prizes its reputation with consumers and has a tremendous cachet because of that reputation. Those companies are really susceptible to boycotts, public criticism. They care about their reputations. And so I think they do, especially when their feet are held to the fire, they really do make a sincere commitment uh, to corporate social responsibility. Um, companies that don't face consumers. Uh, so just from reading Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, the big agribusiness companies, um, uh, you know, Archer Daniels Midland and, and um, uh, um, the other ones that people don't even know their names. So I would be very surprised if they took corporate social responsibility seriously. There's not much economic incentive for them to do it. So again, cycling back to the, the press secretary metaphor, which is really an intriguing one. Um, you've got the president of the United States and you, has, you have his press secretary and the press secretary is there to explain and defend what the president does. He's not right. a policymaker per right. se. That's right. he's, he's a secondary justification function. Yep. That's, that's quite explicit. Um, so, but yet you're optimistic about attitude change within a moral intuitionist framework. It would be as though the press secretary were telling the president what to do as opposed to the president telling the press secretary what to do. So if you look at it just as an individual, we are all so flawed, we are all such, so bad at reasoning when our interests or our moral values are at stake. Um, <clears throat> so we're not going to get better reasoning and change just by helping individuals to reason better. Um, 
But when you put us together into networks and systems and companies and juries and, and legislative bodies, uh, that we can correct each other's flawed thinking. Basically, the big problem is the confirmation bias. We're all so good at confirming what we want to believe. But if there are other people out there to disconfirm it, if we have no relationship with them, we just hate them and disagree with them. But if they're members of our company, if they're friends, um, if they're fellow scientists, this is why it's so important to have ideological diversity in the sciences. Um, because if everybody shares certain assumptions and there's nobody there to question them, then yeah, you get bad reasoning. So I'm a big fan of thinking about institutions as ways that we've developed to uh, put people together in ways that correct for or cancel out our flaws. Um, we see plenty of moral change over time. It's not because of logic, I think. Uh, if you look at, um, uh, for example, um, civil rights, uh, interracial marriage, these were disgusting to many people in America 50 years ago. Um, but over time, the attitudes change. It's not because of arguments, it's because you get used to it. Um, there's a lot of research now on gay marriage. Why is gay marriage, why are attitudes about gay marriage changing so fast? It's not because the arguments that were made back in the 80s, suddenly people understood, oh, I see. It's because people saw will and grace. It's because in the 80s, most gay people were in the closet, but since 5% of all people are gay, and now they're mostly out of the closet, suddenly everybody knows seven gay people and a lot have one in their family. When you get used to something, you, it loses its shock value, it loses disgust value, and now you're just much more open. Um, so moral progress is possible, and if you take an intuitionist view about how you gotta get the intuitions right first, you gotta speak to the elephant as it were, not the rider. Speak to the elephant first, get, get him going the right direction, then the rider will come along, and that's what's happening on gay marriage. We might, might have a problem with mixing metaphors here. We've got elephant and rider, we've got president and press secretary, and I'm fixated on president and press secretary at the moment. But, okay, so, um, so the, president might, the press secretary might come back to the president and say, I can't sell this anymore. That's right. the, re the reputational cost to you, Mr. President, are just too great. You're going to have to change right. it. That would be one feedback mechanism. That's right. Or the exactly. press secretary might quit. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's right. That happens. That's right. So it's not. So when Hume said reason is the slave of the passions, that's too strong a metaphor. A slave doesn't talk back to its master. That's why I like press secretary or lawyer. A lawyer does his client's bidding, but he can say, "Excuse me, sir. Uh, I will do this if you insist. But this is a losing case, and you will look bad. And it is my fiduciary duty to advise you." So there are feedback mechanisms like that. Um, and again, I think we're seeing that on you know on on gay marriage and other issues. Uh, People, in certain social circles, people would feel ridiculous arguing for things that they could easily have argued for 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what, what, you, 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 obviously your, your book has been widely read and widely praised. Um, what's the best critique you've seen of your, of your position? Um, well, one critique is that um, I'm pretty critical of liberals and I'm not critical enough of conservatives, and I think that's true. Um, when I wrote the book, because I had been thinking so much about what liberals don't see about conservatives, that's sort of what I specialized in. So I really tried to help liberals, and, no, and the only people I meet are liberals, and the people that mostly read these books are liberals, so I, I was kind of addressing liberals. Uh, and I should have said some of the things where I think conservatives are wrong. Um, one of the main ones um, is that while liberals, I think, are too quick to try to take apart the law of karma, liberals kind of want to stop bad behavior from leading to bad consequences. And that's a bad thing to do. Society decays when you don't have swift punishment. Um, but conservatives act as though the law of karma is actually true. That is, people who are suffering now are suffering because of something they did in the past. 
And that is sometimes true. Liberals have a complete ban on blaming the victim, which means they can't figure out a lot of, a lot of social facts. Uh, but conservatives, I think, are a little too quick to blame victims um, and to not see uh, how a disadvantage can accumulate and, and, and lead to a downward spiral. Um, so I do wish I'd been more even-handed in my criticism and praise of both sides. I do praise both sides. So the concept of deservingness is a, plays a pivotal role here in, in, in uh, producing ideological divergence. Um, and you're suggesting that um, conservatives believe too much in the concept of deservingness and liberals not enough? Or deservingness it, going forward. Split the difference? No, deservingness, deservingness going forward is, is a great idea. A lot of people realize this, as I did, when you become a parent. You know, of course, I will never spank my child, um, but you want to be loving and uh, gentle, and you discover that you get a bratty kid. And what my wife and I found very quickly was when we used the one, two, three magic method, which is when he's misbehaving, you say, that's one, that's two, that's three, time out. Automatic, quick, rapid punishment. Doesn't have to be severe. Rapid punishment, boy, do you get behavior change. Um, and a lot of our liberal friends are trying to reason with the kids. They don't want to impose power. They don't want to punish. They say, was that a wise choice or an unwise choice? Uh, so I think over and over again, conservatives stand up for equity. That is, if you do something bad, you should be punished. If you do something good, you should be rewarded. Uh, in fact, I show some signs in, uh, in the book and in my talks, um, sign from the Tea Party, uh, stop punishing success, stop rewarding failure. That's about as direct a plea for the law of karma as you could have. Mm -hmm. uh, conservatives, uh, I'm sorry, liberals in contrast, I have a sign, tax the wealthy fair and square. How can they let us go hungry? So, well, see, if there are people who are hungry, well then, of course the rich should pay more tax. We need to be equal. Uh, so liberals value equality, and if you push for equality, that often requires you to violate equity. And we see that in affirmative action. We see that in Title IX, which mandates almost equal outcomes in sports, so that all of our schools are desperate to try to get women into sports, and they're trying to push men out. They don't have enough money to pay for the men. So we don't have equal access to sports in a lot of our schools, because Title IX is an effort to get equality of outcomes. Conservatives are livid about that. And liberals think, oh, well, why isn't there equality of outcome? It must still be sexism. So you're able to weave together these conflicting strands of argument in a very sophisticated, integratively complex way. Um, how, but most people don't think that way, right? If you're a partisan, you cannot think that way. Um, the press secretary tends not to say, well, on the one hand, the Republicans are right about this, but the Democrats are right about that. If he does that, he's fired. Um, so if you're a partisan, you cannot think in an integrative, I mean, that's what your research shows. The further you are out to the extremes, the lower integrative complexity tends to go on most issues. Um, uh, and you know, most Americans are not that extreme. Most Americans will put themselves on one side or the other, but they're not that extreme. Our political life is dominated by more extreme elements, bolstered by the media, uh, which has a business model that also does not cater to integrative complexity. So we're bathed in arguments from people who are not integratively complex. Um, I think it takes some doing, some seeking, some effort to find ideas on, on the other side. Um, and when you do, I mean, that to me has been the great enlightenment. Um, I'm very familiar with liberal ideas. I've been reading them my whole life. When I started reading conservative ideas about social order, about the value of tradition, about how easy it is to lose uh, social order, they really struck me as a revelation. And, I, and I, same with libertarian ideas. Um, for example, here's, this is such a simple formulation I heard the other day. Uh, libertarian philosopher David Schmitz said, a free market society is a giant game in which you win by making other people better off. 
And that was such a simple and clear description of the way libertarians see the free market and how basically free markets really do encourage us all to create something that other people want and will pay money for. And then we're all better off because of it. So insofar as you believe the country would be better off, we'd be, we'd be better off both as individuals and as a society if more people could think in these more integratively complex ways. Uh, what specific things can be done educationally and politically to induce that? So oh, you, you get, sure. get, get people to socialize more with each other in Congress is one thing. Uh, you, you've had other, other suggestions. Could we, yeah. I think sure. as we conclude, it would be useful to mm -hmm. work through the most specific yeah. suggestions you have for sure. how we can uh, get out of this okay. uh, quick, sure. quicksand let's, let's we seem to be in. Let's look at what can we do as individuals uh, and in education. Uh, there's a line from one Shakespeare play, first kill all the lawyers. That's not what I'm recommending. It's first kill all the math classes uh, beyond algebra. Stop wasting so much of our students' time learning math. It's not useful, it's not helpful. Um, teach them more civics, and in those civics classes, teach them the history of liberalism, conservatism, teach them ideological history, Make, get them prepared to treat these long idea, long intellectual traditions with respect. Second, teach them statistics. Cut the calculus. I mean, sure, if students want to take it, fine, but uh, uh, um, everybody should learn statistics. That actually helps you understand the data that's coming in from the social sciences and, and other places. Uh, so even in high school, we can do a lot more to prepare our students for citizenship, uh, not for 19th century notions of an exercised brain that can do math and Greek. Um, um, in our universities, it would be nice if we could have uh, more open and honest debate and be a little less sensitive about people claiming hurt feelings. Um, I think our universities should be places of debate and discussion. And our culture is so litigious and has fostered the idea that everybody has a right to not have their feelings hurt. This is a bad thing. This means we never get to talk with people who differ from us. We, we run away from such discussions. Uh, so there's a lot we could do to help our thinking. But I don't think we, we don't need to all become more integratively complex to get better outcomes. Our political institutions could put together simple-minded thinkers in ways that get integratively complex outcomes as long as they don't demonize. So that, to me, is the key. I'm not out to change people's minds and move everybody to the center. I'm out to make people stop demonizing the other side to say, I disagree with you. You, you, know, you and I disagree about the right way to help the poor or whatever the issue is or the environment. But I see that you have ideas uh, that draw on certain, uh, that your, your, your side is sensitive to certain threats that, that my side doesn't see very well. Uh, so I would urge, uh, urge viewers to go to asteroidsclub.org, a website I started, uh, that helps people see that each side perceives asteroids coming towards the Earth that the other side just has its head in the sand. It won't even acknowledge. Um, so I think there is a lot that we can do to stop demonizing and come to at least respect our intellectual differences. Thank you, thank you so much, John, for joining us. Um, the book is The Righteous Mind, uh, why, why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Uh, it's been great talking with you, and um, we wish you well. Thanks so much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.